Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. This morning, I'd like to share a message with you entitled Living a Big Life Through Prayer. Living a Big Life Through Prayer. And what I wanted to show you, which hopefully I'll be able to do in a few moments, um, I'm still speaking by faith, um, but what I wanted to show you are some photos which you may have seen before of um, cities that were impacted during World War II, cities that were bombed, um, especially during the, the Blitzkrieg and all that that happened in Europe as the Nazis just dropped bombs on, on all the allied cities. And, um, and you often see, and you may have seen it in movies or on the internet, but you'll see these cities where, where there's these buildings, these apartments, these homes where people lived, and you know the front side of the building is just gone. And you've got all the internal workings of the building exposed. And, you th- and I often look at that and I think, how would I feel if that was my home? You know, we love our homes. We, that's our place of rest. That's our place where we, where we raise our families. That's the place where we connect. That's the place where we live so much of our lives. And our homes represent a special part of us. Our homes represent our lives in many ways. We fill our homes with things that we love. We fill our homes, not, you know, to other people it might just be, you know, some cups and saucers or some ornaments or that carpet. But to us, there's a journey attached to every item. And we chose those items usually for a specific reason. And so they may not even, the things in your home may not even be the best of things, but it's your thing. It's my thing, right? It's the things that we, we loved. And I imagine what it must have felt like to have bombs dropping out of the sky and seeing those things that you love scattered on the roadside, trampled on by invading armies and, and, and foreign forces that have come in and, and don't care about your things the way that you care about them. The interiors of the home, that room that you painted, that furniture that you bought or inherited or, or you know, the things that mean something to you, exposed and scattered to the wind. This is the effects of war. Whenever I see those, those pictures and those scenes depicted, I wonder what it must have been like to be that family and to be walking down the street and going, oh, there's that picture frame that I loved, or there's that scatter cushion that I, I made or bought. And, uh, and, and this is something that, that, I, that I often think about. Um, now, imagine that those things, those memories, those photos, those I- items that are being trampled on um, represent more than just things, because that's what I'm ultimately getting to here this morning. They represent your life. They represent your life. And the truth is, or the question is, where do we turn when that happens? Where do you go when your home has been bombed, when, when the things that you held onto for comfort have been scattered to the wind? And if we use this as an analogy for your life right now, some of you have taken some hits during the last 12 months. And oftentimes the life that we were building and the things that we invested in and the places we found our comfort have been bombed by the enemy. And we find that our internal workings, the things that we normally turn to for comfort, they've been exposed. We find that the things that were precious to us have been scattered to the wind and have been lost. And exposing the internal workings of our hearts and our minds 
and unceremoniously dumping our beloved comforts in the street, leaving us with no place to call home. Have you ever felt that way? Just when you felt like this bomb just hit me out of nowhere and I don't know what I'm going to do. And so that's what I want to talk about today. What do you do when the bomb is dropped? What do you do when you've suffered that disappointment, when you've suffered that setback, when you face that calamity, when you're facing that crisis, when you feel like the things that you just wanted to hold on to have been ripped from you? This is why God continually instructs us in the Old Testament and in the New not to find our safety in the comfort of this world, not to find our safety in the things that we can accrue in this world. And oftentimes when we speak about this, it upsets people, especially those that have spent so many years and so much time and so much money trying to create safety. You know, we often think that people just want nice homes and nice things, and that's true. We, you know, we do all love nice things. But one of the main reasons why people do that is because they're actually trying to secure themselves. They're actually trying to buffer themselves from the calamities that take place in this year or in this world. And then in a year like this one we've just had, many of those comforts are often ripped away and we find ourselves exposed. God, however, is calling us to live for something greater, calling us to live for something bigger, a, a, a big life that is lived in triumph over fear, in triumph over these kinds of things that we think are giving us safety but are actually making us prisoners. We become enslaved to them because they are our masters. Now, we love, you know, like I said, we all love things and having things is no problem as long as the things don't have you. So you can have things, but don't let the things have you. And this is the problem when we find our, our significance in them. We want to live big lives that are not finding home in this world and in the things we can own, but in the presence of God. And this is how the Bible puts it in Psalm, it's a well-known Psalm, Psalm 91, verse 1 to 2. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, dwelling place, is a place where you live, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So when you, when you abide in God and in your relationship with Him, you will be in His shadow, the shadow, the protection, the shelter of the Almighty. Now that sounds like one of those verses that you know you stick on your fridge or you put on a bumper sticker or whatever. But this is actually one of the most practical scriptures in all of the Bible. Because abiding is a verb. It's something that you do. It's something that you, that you practice. And it's something that comes out of the faith that we have. So where do we turn to when the bombs are falling and when our homes and our comfort is being blown apart? We turn to the shadow of the Almighty. That's where we abide. That's where we live. By the way, every Sunday I tell us to bring our Bibles so that we can read these scriptures and you don't and now you need it, right? <laughs> I told you when the power goes off, you need a word and then you need, a, you need something physical. All right, so, so this isn't theoretical. This is something that we do as we trust in God. Some of you may be asking, okay, so how do I turn to the shadow of the Almighty? How do I abide there? How do I enter there? How do I dwell there? And the first answer is through faith, and we'll look at that in a moment. But practically, one thing that you can do to make sure that you know where you live 
is to pray. It's prayer. It's being able to communicate and dwell with God in that relationship. And I am well aware that when I or any other pastor starts speaking about prayer, this is normally when people like eyes glaze over and they start thinking about what they're going to be doing for the rest of the weekend. I mean, people know that pastors should be talking about prayer. They just wish that pastors wouldn't do it on the Sundays they came to church, right? Like, I, can you speak about that next Sunday? I don't think I'm going to be here. Can you speak about prayer next week, right? Because for some reason, we wrestle with prayer. We all agree that it's a good thing to pray, but we all feel slightly awkward about it. We all feel that, you know, unless it's something that, you, that you've been able to develop in your life, you're like, how do I just pray? And you know why I think it is? Because it's so raw. Prayer is so real. It's not just singing a song. It's not just standing in a room while the band does their thing. It's not just listening to somebody else talk about God. But it's actually you communicating with God. And so it's like stripping that relationship down to the bare essentials. My question this morning, when the bombs are falling from the sky, can you talk to God? Do you have that genuine relationship with Him where you can just, without protocol, without processes, without all kinds of religious hoops to jump through, just say, God, here I am. I need to talk to you. That's the kind of prayer that I'm talking about this morning. I want to help you with this a little bit today. Because so many agree with prayer in theory, but struggle to walk it out, walk out a life of prayer. I'm trusting that by the time you leave here today, God is going to put that spark and that desire in you personally to abide in Him through prayer. I want to turn to the story of Nehemiah, and that is where I'm going to stick for the rest of the morning. So if you do have a Bible or a cell phone here today, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah. I love the story of Nehemiah. It's one of those, have you ever just, maybe, maybe it's just me, but oftentimes I'll just think about like, you know, Jeremiah or Nehemiah or one of these, Isaiah, one of these names that you've heard. And I'm like, I just want to actually see what the deal is with this guy, you know. I want to see what the story is. What's all the fuss about, you know. And so like you've heard the stories in Sunday school about, you know, Jonah and Noah and all these guys. And then one day you're like, I'm actually going to read that story. And so this is something I've done for years. And I remember the first time when I read the story of Nehemiah. Uh, I think I was in my late teens or early 20s, and I was like, I want to read this whole book and just see what the deal is with Nehemiah. And I instant, instantly uh, resonated with the book of Nehemiah. I felt like Nehemiah and I would have been great friends if, if he was around today. Um, and one of the biggest things that, that I identified with, beyond just his passion and his trials and his vision, um, you know, what, what I loved was the authentic way in which he prayed. He writes this book and he records his own prayers. And what you find out that Nehemiah just had an incredibly natural prayer life. You know, when, you're, when your walk with God is naturally supernatural. He just prayed. He just, in every moment, in every, he would just talk to God, no matter what he was facing. Through all of it, he would just pray. And so I wanted to look a little bit at his story today. The story is, is set in a time when, when Israel, the people of Israel, the Jews, had been taken into captivity into what was one of the strongest empires, conquering empires at that time in the form of Babylon. And the king Artaxerxes, if you wonder who Artaxerxes is, he is the son of Xerxes. If you're wondering who Xerxes is, if you go and watch the movie 300, and there's the guy with the bald head and all the chains, I don't think Xerxes looked like this, but that's his son. 
right? So we were literally talking about it. And that, I always love when you can bring those images and those movies into the Bible timeline. You're like, oh, it was that guy's son that Nehemiah was the cupbearer for. So the Jews are enslaved or in exile uh, by, this, by the Babylonians. And so they're serving in the city as slaves. But Nehemiah rises up and, uh, and he gains a trusted position in the king's court, which is the position of cupbearer, which, as you may have heard before, was an important role. If anybody wanted to poison the king, uh, you know, it was Nehemiah that would be testing whatever the king was drinking before. Fortunately, it was before COVID. And so, uh, and so he would test it. And if Nehemiah himself didn't die, uh, he would be able to serve the king, whatever it was that the king was going to drink. And so there was already this culture in Nehemiah's life that I'm willing to give my life in service, that I'm willing to give my life um, in service. And so, and so uh, Nehemiah is in this position and, um, and we just see this incredible prayer life that he had. And you realize Nehemiah was, wasn't at any point just going through the motions. It wasn't just, let me just do the next thing. You know, he wasn't trying to do a religious duty. No, he actually trusted in and believed in the God that he was praying to. And I believe that that's what prayer really is. And, you know, I'm not saying that I pray perfectly. I remember times when I had prayed for a complete hour and realized that at the end of the hour, I had hardly connected with Jesus. It was just religious. And so we all kind of have that where we get distracted. This last week, I sat down. I went outside at about 11 p.m. at night. It was quiet. And I thought, I just want to spend some time in prayer. And I sat down there. And for the first 15 minutes of my prayer, I was praying. But I was thinking about every other thing. And that's okay. You just push through. So I'm not saying we have to have perfect prayers. But what you realize is that there's a deeper level of prayer when it's not necessarily a task that you set out to do, but it's just a natural cry that comes from your heart. It's just your heart speaking to the heart of God. That's what prayer really is. The reason your prayer life might be struggling at the moment is because you're not talking to anyone. You're not actually perceiving the God that you're speaking to. You're not actually believing in Him in faith. You, you might just be going through those motions because it's a good thing to do or trying to observe all the kind of superstitious things that some Christians have been taught. Now you've got to, first, you, before you can ask for anything, you must first start with this. Now, there are some good forms to how to pray, but you don't need to follow any protocol. I've heard pastors say that you first need to take these three steps and you need to pray for forgiveness of all your sins and then you need to pray for you know, all the sick children in the world and then you need to do this and then you need to make sure that you're on your knees because God hears those prayers more and then you need to do this and then you need to... And then, and, I've, and, I, and I, I have to do this, they say, you enter the revelation zone. <laughs> now God can speak to you. I'm like, what rubbish? <laughs> Jesus is the high priest that went beyond the veil. And the whole reason why we called our church Anchor Church is because it says He has now anchored us beyond the veil. We're in the presence of God. You don't need to get into the presence of God to pray. You don't need your prayers to go up to heaven for them to be heard. The Holy Spirit is within you. You have a relationship. You are anchored. Our lives are anchored in the presence of God. And so the, we don't have to observe protocols because otherwise we're not really speaking to God. We're just being religious. Our help is not found in the act of prayer, but in the object of our prayer. It's found in the one that we're praying to. I know this is, seems obvious, but so many of us think, okay, let's just pray. 
And if we go through that motion, then I'm, I'm okay. No, our faith is not in prayer. It's in the God we're praying to. Right? If our faith was just in prayer, then you could pray to the trees or pray to the sky or pray to statues because then it's the act that is helping. No, it's the God that we're praying to. In Matthew 6 verse 7, Jesus says something like this when he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. You see, if the act of prayer was where the power was, if it was that actual action, then surely the logical conclusion is, the longer we do it for, the more power we have. Right? And so again, something that you might have heard pastors say, is like, no, you pray an hour, and then you push through, and you pray two hours, and then you push through, and you pray three hours, and then you hit four hours, and the revelation zone. You know, like... And some people think, my prayer is never good enough because I don't have four hours. But Jesus says, that's pagan religion. Pagan religions, if you look at when, when Elijah was coming against the prophets of Baal and they were praying for fire to come down from the sky, they thought that the more they said and the more they chanted and eventually they started cutting themselves, the more they sacrifice, the more they will be heard. But Jesus is trying to tell us, please understand who your God is, who our Father is. He's not some, some disconnected, angry God sitting far away waiting for you to cut yourself before He can answer your prayers. He's not waiting for you to reach our fall before you can go, okay, fine, He's faithful, I'll give Him what He needs. No, He's a God that already knows what you need and is waiting for you to trust in Him because the transaction is through faith. So he's waiting for you to pray. And the moment you begin, oh, there we go. That's it. I can do it. God calls us to ask and depend on him rather than trying to figure it out in our own strength. But he is not wanting to hold back from you. Now, I'm not saying that praying for a long time is a bad thing. Oftentimes, I get in a flow with God and I start praying about all the different things. I can, play, I can, I can pray for hours. But it's not about praying for hours. The problem is when you think that you need to pray for hours in order for God to hear you. That's not true. Jesus says that is pagan religion. Now you're trying to appease God in order for him to answer you. You're lacking faith, in other words. And so we can just ask. And this also speaks to, and I thought I would mention this just for one moment. Have you heard of the decree and declare movement? I decree and declare. Now, again, it is great for us to declare the things that God has decreed, right? But again, Christians often take this too far. My issue with it is not the declarations. It's not the decrees that you're making. If you don't know what it is, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're feeling unhealthy, then you go, I decree and declare that I am healthy. And that's fine. But you know what the problem with it sometimes is? It comes back to the same thing. We're going through an action disconnected from God. Our healing is in Christ. And so I would rather decree and declare that God is my healer. That's a great declaration. Keep making that one. But not just, you know, I remember a pastor that I heard of once that they walked on a piece of land and they, they always repeat this phrase, wherever, whatever place our foot shall tread, we shall have it. We take this property, we take this land. They wanted that land for their church. Ended up, they built a highway through that land. Thank God that their stupid prayers weren't answered, right? Because if they, if, oh, decree and declare, there it's your land. Oh, now there's a highway. You've lost the land. So you see, sometimes we need to understand that God knows more than we do. 
And we need to pray to Him and trust in Him, not just follow a formula of saying some things to get what we want. Hebrews 11.6 says this. It says, Without faith in God, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. I love how the Bible just states the obvious. If you're going to come to God, you must believe that He exists. And that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so prayer means that we genuinely trust that God is real and that He is good. That's the beginning of prayer. The moment you have that truth settled in your heart, you can pray. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me. Not when you want something, just decree and declare. Come to me. There's a person that we're coming to. All who labor and are heavy laden. You're trying to work for those things. But come to Jesus and he will give you rest. So the secret to abiding in God, and this is going to blow your minds. Listen to this. The secret to abiding in God is abiding in God. Right? I want the shadow of the Almighty. What must I do? What must I do? Abide in God. That's what you should do. And we do that through prayer and by faith. He is and He is good. And this is one thing that out of all the other things, you know, you can ask my family, you can ask my wife, you can ask my friends. I was lying in bed last night. This is... 100% true before God. I made the mistake of practicing or going through my notes um, just before bed last night. So I was preaching till 3 a.m. in the morning um, because I couldn't fall asleep. And while I was lying there, I started praying in my own head. And as I was praying, I just, at one moment, I thought about how many stupid things I've done in life or just how many mistakes I've made or just how many times I've I've faltered or fallen. And And I just had this prayer. And I said, God, just forgive me for all the dumb things I've done. Just like every dumb thing, you know. And, and, and when, you, when you know who God is and you're, and you're able to pray, you can, you can be yourself. You can be vulnerable. You, can, you don't have to hide. This is not a religious thing. So in spite of all the ways that I've messed up and all the ways that I do mess up in life, the one thing that I genuinely believe And I don't even do this perfectly. I'm far from even being the best example of it or whatever. But the one thing that I have, that I can genuinely say I've done all my life is pray. From the time when I was a child, from the time when I was seven years old, I would lie in my bed and I would talk to God. And that has been, looking back now over the years, the strength of my life. God's grace and that relationship that I knew that no matter what I'm facing, I can turn to Him. He's always there. It is what has strengthened me. It is what has allowed me to get over my obstacles, to get through the the crises and the brokenness and all the other things that have happened in my life. It is the one thing that's kept me on the journey is that I know God is with me. He's with me and I can talk to Him. So it doesn't matter what you're going through, you can abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It doesn't matter how big your failure is, you can abide in the shadow of the Almighty. God is there. You can talk to Him. And so I have just always, it's just been a thing, I've always prayed, not religiously or vainly, and not perfectly either, whatever that means, but praying, whether it's lying in bed as a seven-year-old or walking to my friend's house as a teenager or every time I sat out in nature somewhere or driving in my car when I was a bit older, um, you know, nearly every single time I'm alone, even to this day, without preparing any great speech, I'll just start talking to God. It's that natural and that simple. And I think this is, 
one of the things that has helped me, especially in those moments when I felt that the bombs were dropping and the house that I had built was destroyed, I could just pray. I could just turn to God. And that's where I, I resonated with Nehemiah's story. I want to just mention some highlights here from Nehemiah um, as we, uh, you know, to bring this to a close this morning. Um, but Nehemiah is in the king's court, and at one point he receives a report from some of the Jews that had escaped the exile, went back, to, and they were still living in Jerusalem. And, um, and so he hears report, what's, what's happening in our hometown? In Nehemiah 1 verse 3, it says, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. That sounds like those photos of World War II. You know, it feels a bit like 2020 in general. Or maybe that's just the way that you feel about your life right now. Like, I, I wanted to have this all sorted, but right now the walls are broken down and the gates have been burnt by fire. How, you know, Nehemiah now in this moment, he begins to experience um, what we spoke about last week, which was when you experience something or you become aware of something that develops a passion and an anger on the inside of you, a righteous anger that says, this cannot be. He's starting to experience, this is the beginning of Nehemiah's journey towards living a big life. And Nehemiah this is his call. He knows it. God is putting something. In fact, later on, he says to his men, God has laid this on my heart. How beautiful is that? You know, when God lays something on your heart, he says, this is what you're called to. This is what you are to do. So this is how Nehemiah responds in Nehemiah 1 verse 4. It says, as soon as, he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued praying before the God of heaven. And I said, and so he records his prayers, which is amazing. And I've summarized this a little bit, but he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see how he's not just being religious. He's reminding himself of who the God is he's praying to. He knows who God is. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And I'll get back to what that means in a moment. But as soon as he hears that Jerusalem is in ruins, he is saddened and he is angered. And he knows in that moment, this is something he will not be able to be apathetic about. Like, I've got to do something about this. This is the beginning of experiencing the call of God. Except if you've ever heard the call of God, you know that you've got to do something about it, and you also know that you don't have the ability to do something about it. Right? When I knew that I knew that I knew that God called me to leave the church, I simultaneously knew I cannot do that. And that's where we begin to pray. That's where we begin to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. If you're going to live a big life, you've got to step into that place of trusting in God in prayer. And so what is the first thing Nehemiah does when he feels sad and when he knows he's got to do something about it? He begins to turn to God. He begins to pray. He realizes that it's bigger than him. So prayer, in essence, is a declaration of dependence. It's a recognition that God is sovereign and that he is our savior. And so prayerlessness is not just laziness, because oftentimes it is, that's the result. We're distracted and we're lazy. No, it's actually pridefulness. 
Because what we are ultimately saying is, I don't need to pray because I'm sure I could figure this out by my, on my own. But if you're going to live a big life, you would already know that you can't. And in that moment, we begin to pray. In that moment, we begin to turn to God. Who is this man? Give me mercy in the sight of this man. It's Artaxerxes. It's the king. Have you ever prayed that prayer about your own boss? When you're going to go in and ask for a raise, you're like, please, God, just help me. Give me mercy in the sight of this man. So it's kind of what's happening here. Nehemiah knows that he's got to speak to the king about it. And so in Nehemiah 2 verse 2, it says, And the king said to me, now he's back in the court serving, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is not, nothing but sadness of the heart. What a deep guy Artaxerxes was. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Remember, he's a slave about to ask to be released to go and rebuild Jerusalem. So, I mean, this is a scary moment. He says, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? What is it that you're actually wanting here, Nehemiah? I love this. Listen to this next verse. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, have you ever done that? When your boss says, so you came into my office, what is it that you actually want? And you go, Jesus, help me. Okay, so this is what I'm, this is literally, but do you see how natural that is? He didn't say, wait, pause, I've got to go follow some protocols. I've got to take an hour, two hours, three hours to pray. And then I'll come back and let you know my request. No, in the moment, as it's happening, he prays. This happened, my boys on Friday, they had like a private cricket lesson and the coach comes to the house and, and he's just started helping the boys with their catching and everything. And uh, at one point we were sitting in the room, we can hear them talking. And my boy Leo, seven years old, he, he caught the ball and everybody cheered for him, you know, his brothers and the coach and whatever. And he said, you know what happened? I closed my eyes and I just prayed, Lord, help me catch it. <laughs> so while the ball is traveling, Leo's already got it. That's real prayer. Lord, help me catch this ball. And he caught it with his eyes closed. And so prayer works. You see, the thing is, is that it doesn't have to be this whole long thing. Just pray. Yeah. Just pray. If the ball's on the way, if the car's about to bump into you, if whatever it is, there's this instant moment of where do I turn when the bomb is dropping? I turn to God. Yeah. I turn to God. So I prayed before the God of heaven and I said, if the king pleases, let me find favor in his sight and send me to Judah so that I may rebuild the city. If we're going to build big lives or rebuild our lives, if, it's, if our valuables are scattered to the wind, we cannot rely on religiosity. It's not going to cut it. We need an authentic walk with God, a walk where we're constantly saying, Lord, help me. You want to know what prayer I pray more than any other prayer on planet earth? I pray it every day several times. Jesus, help me. Lord, help me. In whatever moment it is. Lord, help me. When I think about the task ahead of me, Lord, help me, help us. It's great to have a specific time of day to pray every day. But you need to know that even if you just speak, God hears you. In 1 Peter 3.12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. In James 5.16, it says, The effective fervent, there's that zealous again, fervent prayer of the righteous person avails much. It produces results. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. This is the normal thing that we think is, but I'm not righteous. I don't, so in other words, I have to live a great life and then God can hear my prayers. So let me help you with this again. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness 
of God. We are the righteousness of God by our faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, you don't have to do anything to become righteous. You can't. It's impossible. We put our faith in Jesus, and then you are righteous. So you are the righteous man. You are the righteous woman. It's what you are before it becomes what you do. And so are your prayers heard? Yes, they're heard. Why? Because God's ear is attentive to the prayer of the righteous. He is, uh, the, the prayer of the righteous person avails much. And this is what allows us to begin rebuilding the walls, begin walking in restoration, begin walking in the grace of God. Um, Nehemiah didn't just go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. He ultimately built a big life. He built a big life. And when he was there, it's not as if he didn't have opposition. It's not as if he didn't have resistance. Because many of you are like, I've started building a big life, but the bombs keep dropping. What do you do when the bombs are dropping while you're trying to build? It feels like it will overwhelm us. In Nehemiah 4 verse 1 it says, Now when Sanballat heard that they, that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubble and burned ones at that? You see, when you start building, your life might feel like it's bombed right now. And when you start rebuilding, people can often look at you and criticize and say, there's no ways that they're going to rebuild a great life out of this rubble that they've created, out of the effects of war. These stones are burnt. But you know what God does? He revives those stones. He will cause you to build a big life, not with perfect stones, but with previously burnt stones. You know what's the great thing about previously burned stones? They've already been through the fire. They've already been through the difficulty. They've already experienced the hardship. So there's nothing left to do but to trust and to build and to move forward. I believe that Jesus is at his best when we are at our worst. And God uses the burnt rubble, the burnt stones of our lives to build something to his glory. Nehemiah, in the face of that negativity, what does he do? Next verse, he prays. He says, God, hear what they're saying. Help me. Strengthen me. In Nehemiah 4.8, it says, They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. But Nehemiah, it says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard against them day and night. Nehemiah tells them this, and, and, um, and it says that the builders said, let's rise up and build. Let's strengthen our hands because our God will fight for us. You see, then you can move forward because you know God will fight for you. It ends up like this. The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. In 52 days, they built the wall. Now, this was not just one wall. It was the wall's of Jerusalem. It was all the way around a city. They built a wall around a city in 52 days. Even though at times they had to build with one hand and hold a sword in the other to be able to fight off those. And some of you have felt that way. Some of you have felt that I'm trying to build, but I'm also fighting the fight. And I'm not only fighting the fight on one front, but I'm fighting the fight on every front. The truth is is that when you are in that fight, 
If you abide in the shadow of the Almighty, if you go to God in prayer, the Bible is very clear about this, God will fight for you. You think that you're fighting, but one is fighting for you that's bigger than you, that's greater than you. And so greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. It says this, and when all the enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. I love that. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. See, when you build a big life like that, when you build with burnt stones and you do it in record time, and even though you feel like your life is just scattered to the wind, all of a sudden there's a great restoration that takes place. All those that criticized, all those that attacked, all those that jeered will look at you and say, surely God has been involved here. What a testimony. What a testimony for all of us. Nobody will be able to deny the fact that God has worked on your behalf. You know how many times in my life people have written me off? So, yep, that's the end for him. What does God do? He just builds a greater wall. He just keeps building. He just keeps building. I've had to walk this out in my own life. He just keeps building. And he uses whatever rubble is there. And he says, no, we're going to build a greater wall with this. There's restoration for all of us in the shadow of the Almighty. What is it that you feel God is calling you to build right now? Like Nehemiah, it might be more than one wall. You might be fighting on more than one front. But if you want strength for the fight and for the build, you're not going to find it in you. This is maybe the key verse or the key prayer that Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah 6.9 But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Why don't you just stand with me this morning? I want to pray for your hands.